Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Word of God for our study today is the second part of our first lesson, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 9, is printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear friends in Christ, have you ever watched a game, doesn't really matter what sport, when one team seems to be heading easily toward an inevitable win and nothing seems to be breaking the losing team's way, when suddenly you realize that everything on the field has changed, the losing team seems not to have understood that it was time to quit, and with one incredible play after another, they start clawing back the lead. And the commentators, in wonder and respect, say something like, it looked like it was all over, but this team didn't get that memo. They're still in it and playing to win. Dealing with life issues like abortion and assisted suicide in our society is hardly a game. But plenty of Christians live as though they are spectators watching a contest that is already all but over, that, our, that while our team isn't going to quit entirely, that there's really no point in investing much of ourselves, our time, our money, or even our attention when the other side already has such a commanding lead. Certainly plenty of life's opponents want Christians to think that way and to leave the field to them in forfeit. Of course, thinking that way is somewhat understandable. Millions, millions of babies have been aborted since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, and hundreds of thousands are aborted every year since. Various states and jurisdictions have not only legalized but promoted assisted suicide. The pro-life message rarely seems to get a, a fair hearing in our culture and media. So it's not that hard to conclude that our attention might be better focused just on ourselves and our churches and, and to forget about speaking up, fighting for life, or, or trying to make any difference in our culture today. But when we listen to what the Lord has to say, we learn that he does not consider anything all over yet. God thinks that life, every life, at whatever age, in whatever situation, matters. He has made it clear that anyone's life and death are in his hands. He only decides. So he tells us it's time to invest, not disengage. Time to work harder, not sit back and lament the way things used to be. And time to be bold and determined, not to shrink away in fear or false resignation. This contest for life that we are in by virtue of being members of God's family and bearing the name of Christ on earth is not over until the Lord says it is over. We are still in it, in it for life. It matters. A reading today from Jeremiah was a message from God that his people 
didn't particularly want to hear. But that had been the problem for quite a while already. The people of Judah and Jerusalem and, and even their kings had decided that, that it was enough to have the Lord as their nation's figurehead God. They felt no need to actually honor, worship, trust, or obey Him themselves as their own and only God. Sure, there were still some true believers left in the land, but they had little influence. And it wasn't just that the people's and their leaders' faith in the Lord had cooled. They had mostly replaced Him with other gods. They made sacrifices to pagan deities and even gave places of honor in their homes to idols of all sorts. And this kind of breaking the first commandment was the one thing that the Lord had made clear they should never do if they wanted to remain His people. And He had told them clearly what the cost of such betrayal and idolatry would be. They would lose their land and be taken into exile far away. Now up to this point, no one had really believed it would happen. But it did. <laughs> because they didn't listen to the long parade of prophets that the Lord sent to warn them. And when God had finally had enough, He sent the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar, and they conquered Judah and took a large number of the people back to Babylon. But still, Still, many stubbornly refused to believe that God meant everything that he had said. Some figured that since Jerusalem and the temple still stood at that point, that it was just a minor, temporary setback. It wasn't. The Lord had Jeremiah write the letter that is our text to make clear that anyone telling the exiles that they'd soon be going home was a false prophet. And to those who instead thought that Judah's defeat by the Babylonians meant that God couldn't be trusted to take care of his people, well, to them the message was that the Lord had not forgotten them. Both groups needed to accept the reality of their situation and listen to what God had to say about it. Both ill-informed optimism and despair would lead to an unhealthy apathy, a refusal to invest or engage in the land they'd settled in. The situation is often similar with Christians in our society and life issues. We look at how long abortion's been legal, approved, practiced, and even cheered in our nation, and we despair of seeing it terminated. We see the steady advance of assisted suicide through courts and legislatures, and we see how fellow Christians make decisions about things like birth control, fertility treatments, and end-of-life matters without even asking what God might have to say, and we abandon hope. And on the other hand, some believers optimistically tell themselves that, that the tide is going to turn any day now with our guy in office, with these new judges, with those a few strategic wins in Congress, with, with new laws to force the government or media to take our side or, or whatever. And well, then everything's going to be fixed and put back the way it's supposed to be. So we 
Well, we can just sit back and watch it all happen. But God wants us to see the field as it really is. First, he wants us to remember that he was, or that just as he was the one who exiled the Jews to Babylon, so in his wisdom, he has guided and moved things so that we ended up where and when we are, in this place, this country, this culture. God also reminds those with ill-informed optimism, expecting a quick change, that he sets the times for all things and that he sees things we cannot. We cannot presume that things will get better for the cause of life just because of few changes that might look like wins. And we can't even say, well, things can't get any worse than they are now because history and the examples of other nations show that they can and do get worse. Yet to those, on the other hand, who see only reason for despair, God shows a world that will respond to our engagement. For Jeremiah's people, there would be homes and cities to prosper in, and fruitful gardens and marriages to make good lives. For Christians today, there are countless ways to influence and improve our society with our work, with our families, with our, our votes, with our voices, with our giving, with our relationships, and, and so much more. But most of all, what God wants us to see is that we can trust Him. It should be obvious that the Creator of the universe can be counted on to see His will done with us and in the world, but we're not so good at that. The Jews in exile in Babylon were there because they had failed to trust the Lord. They'd had a, a generational problem with taking Him for granted and, and giving their love and worship to false gods. Sadly, Christians in America are increasingly doing the same kinds of things. Taking God for granted and giving their love and worship to false gods, not Baals and Ashtoreths, but idols like fame and fashion, wealth and comfort, popularity and pleasure, social media likes, and both a things-will-never-get-better despair and an optimism that things will get better without God's or our involvement show a failure to trust in Him. But He can be trusted. You wouldn't be here if He couldn't be trusted that he has the power to do what he says he will do is obvious from the first day of creation and many things since. Sadly, something else that is obvious, if we dare to look, is that God cannot trust us. We are sinners. Adam and Eve broke his trust at the very beginning, and, and we've been doing the same with our own sins ever since no matter how sincerely we might promise to do only what He wills and not do what He forbids. And when we do what our sinful nature wants, we earn God's wrath and punishment. and We deserve not happiness or heaven, but death and hell. But although the Lord is a just and holy God who cannot leave evil and rebellion unpunished, 
He is also a gracious and compassionate God. In love, he could not allow us all to go to hell without doing something to save us from our sins. So he sent his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer and die on the cross as our substitute and then raised him from the dead to to give us the victory, not only over our own sin, but over Satan and death itself. And this was just what he promised to do, and he did it. And since he proved that he can be counted on for the most important thing there is, well, then we know that he can be relied on for everything else, for eternal life in heaven, for protection from our foes here on earth, for provision for our earthly needs, for answers to our prayers, and and so much more. And this means that he can also be trusted for life on all of the life issues that are at stake in our culture today. He can be trusted to equip, encourage, and empower us to, to, to see the state of the constant contest we are in against a culture of disrespect and, and, and to say, we are not giving up or giving in. We are still in it for life. Now clearly, Christ does not call us to be mere spectators. The Lord didn't tell the Jews in Babylon it was fine for them to just watch others build homes and plant gardens or to enjoy the work someone else did and call it their own. He told them to do it themselves. So we believers today also hear God telling us not to be satisfied with the status quo or with a comfortable, let somebody else worry about that indifference. He tells us to engage with our society and invest in the land we live in. Christ has called us to be good citizens of our nation and community, just as he has called us to all of our other vocations. Now, of course, what this looks like won't be exactly the same for every Christian. Some have the gifts, time, personality, and opportunity to serve on the front lines of the fight against abortion. Some will do their fighting with checkbooks and at the ballot box. But one thing most every Christian has the power to do is to uphold God's design for marriage and the family and to happily demonstrate to the world that it not only still works, but is actually the best model for happiness and prosperity. The Lord told the Jews to get married, have children, have their children get married, and then have them have children of their own. He, He tells us to do the same. There is no exception found in Scripture that says when life is hard or when life is too good or when society has advanced to some particular point, then forget what God has to say about marriage and children. Instead, we are told from the beginning of the Bible straight on through, to marry when we have that opportunity and desire. And the married are told to have children when they have that opportunity. This shows the skeptics in our society that the things we Christians say matter really do matter to us. Now, another way most believers are able to still be in it 
for life is to not back away from tough questions about things like fertility treatments, medical interventions, and end-of-life care, or to cede the field to others in our society who claim to have all the answers. Scripture tells us what we need to know, but you don't have to find answers all by yourself, and in fact, in many cases, you shouldn't. God has given you your pastors and other Christians who can counsel you, sharing his wisdom from the Bible and bringing it to bear on your particular situation. Of course, the way that every believer is able to get in it in the fight for life is by calling for help, praying, rather than merely complain about presidents, senators, judges, and bureaucrats who do not respect life as they should, as God intends them to do as his representatives, we can bring the power of the Almighty to bear and pray that he gives them wisdom and and moves them to make good decisions. Scripture tells us to do this not only for our good, but for the good of all our society. If the Jews were to pray for the good of Babylon, where they were in exile, how much more will we pray for the good of our nation, which we love and is the home that we choose? Yet there will be voices telling us to stay out of it, out of politics, out of other people's choices, out of any kind of conflict over life issues. Some of those voices come from within us. They offer excuses. Well, I'm not pregnant, so what do I care about abortion? I'll worry about whether doctors killing patients who want to die is a good thing if I ever face that myself. You know, other people care about this a lot more, so I'll just let them handle it. But don't fool yourself. Not caring about life is not an option God has given us. It matters. In fact, in Proverbs 31, we are explicitly told, speak up for those who cannot speak. Speak for the rights of all those who are defenseless. Speak up, judge fairly, and defend the oppressed and needy. Of course, any voices telling us to just stay out of everything are doing what the false prophets Jeremiah warned against did. They tell us that since Christians are supposed to be all about love, then love for women facing a problematic pregnancy means we should just let them kill their babies. Or they tell us that that God can't possibly want anyone to suffer, so an early death by one's own hand or with the help of a doctor should be an option for everyone who decides that life has just become too hard. Do not let anyone deceive you. These are God-defying, truth-denying lies. The Lord has not sent them. But at the same time, as Christians, we do not want to meet deception with derision, arguments with anger, or deviance with violence. We certainly won't meet problems with platitudes or suffering with slogans. God told us to seek the peace of our land, and we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
So while we will certainly face opposition and have enemies, we don't work to make them. We want to win people to our side, heart by heart, mind by mind, soul for soul, which is done with loving persuasion, not with hostile confrontation. Because our fight for life is a fight for people, for our neighbors, our fellow citizens, men, women, and children, born and unborn, people that God loves and that Jesus died to save. We want them all to have life, and through the gospel, have life more abundantly. In our reading today from Matthew, Jesus diagnosed in just a few words what it is that goes wrong with Christians who sit down on their job as witnesses in society and who look at the sad and sinful state of the world and give up and give in. He said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. He made a similar point with the believers in Laodicea in our reading from Revelation 3. In living out their faith as his disciples and representatives, those people were no longer hot, not even cold. They were merely lukewarm. And he was about to spit them out of his mouth. We've spoken already about all the things that we want to do in this land that God has settled us in as his people. How we serve our neighbors by being salt and light and how we should devote ourselves to prayer for our nation, its people, and our, its leaders. But there's one more prayer that is worth praying today and every day. We pray that the Lord would make our love warmer and more fruitful all the time despite the increase of wickedness and despite our fleshly preference for chilling out and just watching the world go by. After all, we are in this for life because of God's love for us. And it's His love in us that makes all the difference for life and for the world. It matters. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.